1: who came, we we were signed to Dick James Music as songwriters, the same publisher as The Beatles, so it was kind of high profile. And this was the guy who had signed us to write these songs for the the middle-of-the-road people that didn't work out. And as we started writing, along came this guy called Steve Brown, who was sort of the in-house hippie, where everybody else was pretty straight-laced. And he basically called a spade a spade, and he said, you guys, you know, you have potential. You cannot keep writing this crap for other people. It's no good, and it's not going to work. But I like some of this new stuff that you're doing. But you need to do it for yourselves. And slowly but surely, we realized that Reg Dwight had to be the singer of these songs but he couldn't remain Reg Dwight. We had to think of another name that was more appealing. Hence, he became Elton John.
0: Hi, I'm Rachel Hollis, and this is my podcast. I spend so many hours of every single week reading and listening to podcasts and watching YouTube videos and trying to find out as much as I can about the world around me. And that's what we do on this show. We talk about everything. I feel like I'm having a little bit of an out-of-body experience because I can't believe I'm sitting with you. Oh. Like, I'm actually pretty... <laughs> Is
1: that a good thing yeah, or a bad no, thing? No,
0: I mean, for me, it's a great thing. Oh, I okay. hope it's a good okay, thing for well. you. I've actually referenced you many times. Oh, thank when you. I, yeah, when I'm doing... Um, I was on, I'm on a podcast tour now. I did one last year as well, and part of the keynote I gave in that was talking about you. Really? Yeah, because... I mean... for so yeah well for so many reasons but one because i feel like the way that the internet exists and social media exists people think that in order to have a career that's creative or a career that's successful that they have to have this very public facing you have to be the star and if you can't be the star then you shouldn't try and do anything at all and i always i'm like I feel like you have the greatest job in the entertainment industry because you're creative, you're successful, you're around really cool people, you're inside of music.
1: And I can be anonymous. And
0: you can be anonymous.
1: (laughs) Exactly. So was that... Well, I I was, believe me, I've been dragged kicking and screaming into social media (laughs) in the last few years, you know. I mean, the only thing actually that I am on is Instagram. Mm -hmm. And it's purely because originally I did have a, um, a website but obviously websites have become somewhat obsolete yeah. now and the, the reason I, I switched out switched off of that and switched on to Instagram is I think it's actually a more personal way of interacting with yeah. fans yeah you know I used to write sort of things on my face uh, not Facebook page on my uh, uh, Web, web page. I, I forget all the terminology. It's, it's like an anthem to me. I, I, I don't know how to deal with it all, but one one is enough and so it's a, it's a good way to get things across and it's more personal, obviously.
0: When you were coming up in the industry when you started to have success as a songwriter, did anyone and forgive me if it's a ridiculous question, did people who weren't music insiders know who you were? Like you said now, Instagram's a way to keep up with the fans, but did you have fans back then, or people didn't know the world? Well, when that you we played? started
1: out, we had zero fans <laughs> because we were just jobbing songwriters. I mean, Elton John didn't come into existence till uh in early 70, late 69.
0: And when did you start trying to make money as a songwriter? What year in
1: 67? Oh, okay, when so you I had first a few met years. with Elton, okay, yeah. So when we first got together, there was no idea of Elton becoming Elton. He was still Reg back then. And we were literally jobbing songwriters, just writing songs for uh middle of the road artists. You know, we, we had we had dreams of going further and writing things for ourselves. But back then in order to make money we had to write songs for people who were current at the time. Uh, in England, especially like you know Tom Jones or Englebert Humperdinck or Slla Black and people like that, who depended on so- outside songs, so we were kind of we were kind of split between two worlds we were We were trying to make money by writing these songs which weren 't very good, obviously, and writing the things that we wanted to write, which were current at the time you know this this was definitely the time of so it was It was the late 60s, so there was still that whiff of psychedelia about everything. So we were trying to write things that were current, that were in the mode of people that were popular at the time, like, say, Procol Harum or uh, Pink Floyd or Cream, you know. So we were all mining from the same well. But we were living in a sort of split world because... We were being very corporate and commercial on one side, but we were trying to formulate something new and different on the other side. And then, when obviously this this one didn't work out, uh, in order to get this one, the other one off the ground, we had to Elton had to be, Reg had to become Elton and morph into Captain Fantastic, and uh, we started a record career with him at that point.
0: So when you are writing these songs, whether it's, you know, for Tom Jones or for you guys in the project that you were doing over here, was it, I hate asking this question, but I'm curious, was it like in the movie where you're turning in essentially like poems or completed just written word and he's doing the music or did you guys actually sit in a room together and make Music.
1: Okay. No, I mean it's exact. It's funny because you mentioned the movie, and the movie is obviously a fantasy to a certain degree. But there are a lot of elements of it that are spot on. I mean, the whole scene of uh, Elton writing your song was pretty much how it happened. Wow. Except that his mother and grandmother weren't in the room. Uh, But it it really kind of happened that way. But that—that's really not not what you're asking. Yeah, it's always always been lyrics first, melody second, and as I explain in the book very clearly, I've always been somewhat confused by the terminology of a songwriter, what a songwriter means. I've never thought of myself as a quote unquote songwriter. I don't even I'm I'm even uncomfortable with the word lyricist. I've always thought of myself as basically. A storyteller, a cinematographer, uh, and and that's how I like to be thought of. It always has been very separate, two rooms. You know, the old two rooms at the end of the world. It just paid off that way. It worked that way. We were never going to be the kind of songwriters that you know hunched over the piano like in the in the movies, (laughs) you know, and the the sort of Brill Building thing or the the great American songwriters, you know, uh, the Gershwins or whatever you know, the, the loose tie and the yeah, rolled up smoking a thousand and, you cigarettes, know, cigarettes yeah. and try this here, try you know. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. How does this work? How does it? Yeah. Put that one in there. Put that. No, that was never going to work. We would have just tripped over each other. And if it ain't broke, don't fix it. You mm-hmm. know, so um, it's always worked that way. And, uh, you know, as I say, you can't overthink it. You don't want to overthink it. If it works, You know, you you can mess around with it and become more objective on each other's participation. But at the same time, you know, know your space, know your ground, know which lane to travel in.
0: Well, with that song in particular, how are you writing it almost like a poem or do you hear music in your mind?
1: that's a question that could be answered in in on different levels you know the thing is that again one of the terms that I loathe being called as a poet
2: (laughs) it's the last thing
1: I am I'm you know if you're going to call me anything if you have to I'm a lyricist I'm not a poet what I write is not poetry when I first started writing lyrics I knew nothing about writing songs I was just I was just flying by the the seat of my pants and pretending that I knew, but I was writing very long-form stuff that had no sense of rhythmic pattern. There was no sense of verse, verse, chorus, possible bridge, more verse. I didn't know how to construct a lyric for a song. All I'd heard were songs on record. And to me, back then, when I was a kid, I just figured that whoever sang the song wrote it, you know, and just made it up. I didn't know how it got done. You know, I never looked below below the title and saw in parentheses the name of the songwriters. Didn't know how that worked. So I was incredibly naive, but so, as I say, I was flying by the seat of my pants just thinking, well, hopefully this might work. And luckily, I found somebody who was able to formulate what I wrote into a melodic song. I mean they weren't pretty they weren't terribly good in the beginning <laughs> in the offset but as time went on I learned about the process and I I became more proficient and so ultimately I mean years and years later on I started writing with a guitar you know because I became more musically proficient so the guitar became sort of a bit like Linus's blanket you know I, I had to have it there and I would just play you know it's the all three chords and the truth you yeah. know I would I would just strum and it would give me a sense of rhythm it'd give me a sense of you know a musical pattern but at the same time I never felt that that was dominant enough to tell him what to do I would never go to him and say well I do have a melodic idea for this but sometimes he would say to me well read it to me you know show me how you feel the rhythm goes you know that's happened on occasion but if i've ever had a melodic idea in my head for a lyric that i've written it's never it's never panned out in any way how i i imagined it would and that's it's all for the better because he's a great melodic writer and also a lot of what you write uh lyrically Dictates what kind of song it's going to be. If That's you write true. something like Saturday Night's All Right for Fighting, you know it's not going to be a ballad.
2: <laughs> or by
1: the same token, if you write something like Don't Let the Sun Go Down on Me or Someone Saved My Life Tonight, you know it's going to be a ballad. Or, and, and again, if you write something like, let I me mean, think of a, like Daniel or something, Daniel has a sort of rhythmic cadence to it that you think okay it's going to be not up-tempo and it's not going to be a ballad it's it's going to be mid-tempo mm-hmm. you know so i think lyrically sometimes what i write just dictates how it is going to be melodically
0: how does it show up in your mind does it show up as a, a a thought i want to write a song about this is it a word is it a sentence
1: again that's something that's sort of changed over the years when I was younger, and I traveled all the time, and I traveled with the band in the first couple of years before I'd sort of formulated my own life and gone off on my own and you know because Elton and I were joined at the hip for the first couple of years, it was just me and him against the world so uh but I was always and always have been an observer, you know, I just love watching people, people watching, I get ideas from everywhere, and especially when I traveled when I was younger, you know characters. Uh, people you'd see in airports so I would I would be constantly writing things down on whether it was a napkin or a hotel stationery or a vomit bag on a plane you know <laughs> which I was thinking about the other day have you noticed they don't have vomit bags they don't
0: you're, you're on your own why is that <laughs> it's
1: <don't know.
0: laughs> a great question
1: yeah yeah it is funny because I was thinking about the other anyway that's irrelevant <laughs> but it is a good question So it'd be things like that, beer mats, you know, cocktail napkins. And I'd just have pocketfuls of them and I'd throw them in a box when I got home. And it it was like um, when it it became time to sort of write, uh, we were ready to do a record, you know, maybe a couple of months before we went in the studio, I'd start piecing things together. I love titles. I mean, I, I would always come up with really interesting titles, because when I was younger, and I would thumb through record bins, you know, albums, the the albums that I was always gra- would always gravitate towards would be things that had interesting titles, and they were usually American releases, you know. So titles, you know, uh, just lines, just words. Sometimes, you know, if I saw a character in a in a hotel lobby or in a in an airport somewhere that that struck me as interesting i would i would photograph mentally that person and that person might become the the center point for something i wrote about i'd think about that person and where that person came from and what that person did and what that person might do you mm. know i would invent stories for people you know whether it be a razor face or a leave on or anything you know i was I've all, aw- and I still am today. I'm still an observer. You know, when I travel, you know, I sit in the airport. Most of the time I'm wondering why, who, I, I try for the one person who isn't on their phone, you know, doing this. Yeah. You know, which is sad. Yeah. Know? I mean, nobody's reading a book. Nobody's reading a paper. Nobody's talking to each other, yeah. basically. So yeah. things like that affect me, you know, and I, 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 I mentally, uh, It goes in there somewhere and stays there and it'll come out in some way, some expressive form.
0: Almost every morning of my life, I have oatmeal. Seriously, during the winter, having something hot in the morning really makes a big difference in my day. Quaker getting up to some good since 1877. Look for Quaker Oats at your local grocery store. I am taking my four children away this weekend to go skiing. national average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Do you still have those napkins and bits of paper and...
1: There may be some of them i mean we 've got so many files and and file boxes and stuff that are in storage you know i mean i 'm certainly not going to i, I can 't stand going in there and digging and looking for things which i which I had to do for the book to a certain point, you know especially photographs and i have I have a terrible memory too, so that 's why the book is so nonlinear you know because i couldn 't possibly try and sit down and piece it together order, from yeah. A to Z. It wouldn't have, I wouldn't have enjoyed doing that anyway. That's not the way my mind works.
0: Going back to something you said earlier that you realize in order to make this thing happen, you and Elton would have to sort of work on Elton as the as the person who was singing these songs. Was that just the two of you trying to figure that out? Did you guys have a team of people? Or were you just flying by the seat of your pants?
1: <laughs> well, I wouldn't call it a team. That sounds way too professional. <laughs> uh, you know, we had acquaintances and friends, and there was a peripheral gathering of people that were supportive, but the really the core element was just Elton and myself. Yeah. I mean, we really depended upon each other. And uh, he's often cited me as being the brother, younger brother he never had. And I kind of viewed him as the elder brother, too, because he was very supportive of me. He didn't look down on me when other people kind of thought of me maybe as a bit of a hick or a British hillbilly, you know, because <laughs> I came from the north of England. Well, they didn't realize that I wasn't a northerner. You know, my parents, my mother was a true bohemian, you know, and she just happened to move with my father to the north of England because he wanted a farm. But they were very European in the way they acted. They spoke French to each other. My mother cooked European style. You know, we didn't have dry lettuce and salad cream and (laughs) um, egg and chips and stuff like that that everybody else in the village was eating. So I I came from a very well-read, knowledgeable family. You know, my grandfather was a teacher, Uh, an educator, a brilliant mind, you know, and so I was given access to literature and fine art from a young age, uh, as well as good music. And so... You know, I wasn't the country bumpkin, I think a lot of people probably perceived me as when I came down to London. Elton saw that. Elton knew that. You know, in fact, he admits that in his book. He writes about how, you know, I was well-read, intelligent, and um, but he was very complimentary. And I don't think a lot of people saw that. So I was somewhat marginalized by certain individuals not not in a mean way just that they didn't think i knew what was going on and in a way they may have been right i wasn't technologically proficient i didn't know how studio worked but as i've done all my life i was an observer and i learned fast and i learned quick and you know i left them in the dust eventually
0: when you made the decision that you were going to focus on your own music and this project that you were working on how do you how how do, how do you make that? How do you make Elton John? Elton John? How do you start getting y'all's music out there? How does that begin to take shape?
1: Well, it's a lot of work, and so you have to formulate everything to the best of your abilities. I mean, once we started writing songs, what happened was I'll just reiterate this because there was a gentleman who came, we we were signed to Dick James Music as songwriters, the same publisher as the Beatles, so it was kind of high profile. And this was the guy who had signed us to write these songs for the middle-of-the-road people that didn't work out. And as we started writing, along came this guy called Steve Brown, who was sort of the in-house hippie, where everybody else was pretty straight-laced. And he basically called a spade a spade, and he said, you guys, you know, you have potential. You cannot keep writing this crap for other people. It's no good, and it's not going to work. But I like some of this new stuff that you're doing, but you need to do it for yourselves. And slowly but surely, we realized that Reg Dwight had to be the singer of these songs but he couldn't remain Reg Dwight. We had to think of another name that was more appealing. Hence, he became Elton John. We actually wrote, the first song that we wrote that we ever thought was really quite good was a song called Skyline Pigeon. And that was a song that we kind of went, this was sort of, this could be the the stepping stone to better things. And so we made a couple of singles that sort of fell flat. We did, but then we'd had a single called Lady Samantha. It was just a one-off single that caused some noise at radio. And then that, that sort of, after that, we said, well, OK, in order to get this music across and get our songs across, we have to put a band together. So we put a band together with Nigel Olsen and Dee Murray. We didn't have a guitar player. We just had piano, bass, and drums, and which was kind of an anomaly at the time. But it was very unique, so it caused a lot of interest. And went out, started gigging, and then we made our very first album, which was a thing called Empty Sky. And it was very sort of de of the day. You know, it was kind of... Fanciful, and the songs were uh, mystical, and it was a combination of all kinds of things. It was a, a little bit Rolling Stones, it was a little bit Leonard Cohen, it was a little bit Bob Dylan, it was a little bit um, trippy hippie kind of Pink Floyd stuff. It was it was a pastiche of everything that was commonplace at the time, and. It got relative well reviewed, but again, it was a stepping stone. It was a foot we got a, a foothold, and then, things the ball ball started rolling. We, you know, we were out there. Elton was out there playing. We were getting good responses because it was a very unique kind of band, and all of the elements came together when we uh, went to make the second album, which was the Black Album, the Elton John album, and everything sort of boomeranged from there. I mean, it just, everything took off. We, uh, Dick James, who was managing Elton at the time, said, you know, I've got you a booking in the States. Elton wasn't sure he wanted to go because we were just getting, again, a foothold on the English music scene. But we acquiesced in the end, went to California in the November of 1970, and basically the rest was history.
0: What was the first major hit off that? Album or the first major hit? I guess your song. What a way to go! What a way to start!
1: But you know, your song wasn't a huge hit. It was. It. It was. I think a lot of people think everything. All those songs that they know now that are so commonplace. Yes. I think they think that all those things were a huge hit when they came out, and they really not all of them were. Like Tiny Dancer wasn't a big hit when it was first released. How long Uh, did that? I'm not now. Okay, I'm not a sort of. Elton is a, a walking encyclopedia of our recording history. I mean, he, this is a guy who knows every single place he's played in the world, when he played it, how many people were there. You know, I mean, he's his mind is incredible, and it's like he is a walking, talking Billboard chart. He knows where all of his, you know, all of our songs are placed over the last five decades or so. I couldn't. I I couldn't tell you where one of them played. I mean, I might be able to tell you. I know that Honky Chateau was the first number one album we ever had in the states. But as far as the the sing, I don't even know what were singles. You know, I I thought I was thinking the other day that something was a single and it never was. So I'm the worst person to ask about are recording history as far as chart successes. But think.
0: how wild that you, I mean, we're talking about the 60s. So you were, you were writing Well, songs. the 60s. Oh, well, into the 70s, right? Yeah, I yeah. mean,
1: we got together in 67. 67, right. not a lot happened. It was all 68, 69, but... 70, you know, the 70s was when it really took off. We, we weren't an immediate success. Yeah. We went through a lot of baby steps before we, we really got a handle on things. You know, there were a lot of ups and downs and there were a lot of times that I don't think we ever believed, we, we ever thought we were going to give up. But, you know, if, it's wonderful if you see, because Elton used to keep a diary for years I think he probably still does. But, you know, if you, you see some of the entries in those diaries, you know, you can see, read the disappointment, you know, terrible day, will things never go right, you know, those kind of comments in his diary. And, yeah, we got disillusioned a lot, and we saw people rocketing to success, you know, and us basically eating their dust. And But we persevered, and... We persevered at our craft and we got better and better and better. And when we knew we really had something to say, then things started happening.
0: It's spring guys, or it's very close to spring, which means it's very close to the time of the year where I start planting my garden for summer. And this year I was really excited to add a lemon tree, not from a seed, but like an actual tree. Did you know that Fast Growing Trees is the biggest online nursery in the U.S. with more than 10,000 different kinds of plants and over 2 million happy customers in the U.S.? You can grow lemon, avocado, olive, or fig trees inside your home on top of the wide variety of houseplants available. Fast Growing Trees makes it easy to order online and your plants are shipped directly to your door in one to two days. And along with their 30-day Alive and Thrive guarantee, they offer free plant consultation forever. Right now, they have some of the best deals online, like up to half off on select plants. And listeners of my show get an additional 15% off their first purchase when using the code Rach at checkout. Guys, get a lemon tree like me. We can be twins. That's an additional 15% off at FastGrowingTrees.com using the code RACHE at checkout. FastGrowingTrees.com, code RACHE. Offer is valid for a limited time. Terms and conditions may apply.
2: It's your time. Join global thought leader, executive producer, and New York Times bestselling author T.D. Jakes and today's leading culture shifters for an experience unlike any other.
0: Are still being played on the radio, potentially even more than they were when you first brought them out. Absolutely, that's Absolutely. wild.
1: Well, I think I think again, you know, it's it's dangerous to question those things <laughs> lest they fail tomorrow, you know. But quite honestly, I think they have a timeless quality to them. Absolutely, I think there's a new audience comes along all the time, and they find it. It seems like. You know, a great majority of them seem to find a new life every few years. You know, some other, some new project comes along, whether it be a movie or a a mashup like the thing with Dewalooper and and Elton, you know, which was a massive hit worldwide. I mean, huge. And that's just a mashup of our old songs. So the people that are buying, well, I shouldn't say I do, people buy, I don't think people buy (laughs) records anymore, stream. People streaming it you know, weren't alive even 20 years ago, never mind, you know, 50-some years ago. So, true. so yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's amazing, it's wonderful, and it's gratifying, but I do think that so many of those songs are very timeless. They seem to be able to exist in every decade and yeah. make sense.
0: Yeah. Speaking of Tiny Dancer... Where? What was the impetus for that song? What was the inspiration? Well,
1: it's a, it's, a, it's a composite of people, you know. People always make the mistake and think I wrote it about my first wife, which is, and I think that came from the fact that I dedicated it to her on the first, on the Madman album. Got it. But it was really, I would say, a composite of about four or five people. The whole thing about the Madman album was it was kind of like, a, we'd written the tumbleweed, Connection album before that, but we'd never been to the States. So Tumbleweed was a sort of historic uh, pastiche of, of what the band were doing. It was our, you know, I was so influenced by the band and so invigorated by the fact that they were singing about those kind of things that it released in me the ability to do that for myself, because those were the songs that I really wanted to write. But I was afraid to write them. I was a closet sort of country fan, and they basically invented Americana and made it cool. And I thought, well, dang, if you know they can do it, I, I, I'm going to do it too. And it paid off again. But that album, you know, a lot of people don't realize that that album came out before we'd even gone to the states. So it was my vision of a mythic America. Wow. But what the Mad Men album was was an album of my embrace of America when I came here in 1970 and I traveled a lot. I drove out of LA, I'd go to places like Arizona and visit the heartland. I, you know, I, I would do road trips all the time. And the Madman album is definitely my American road trip. You know, all of those characters on that album are taken from the fabric of a, of a, American ways of life, you know, all different ways of life. And and in the same way as Tiny Dancer is the consummate sort of L.A. song. I mean, it mentions people like uh, selling tickets out, selling tickets out for God. You know, that was based on the Children of God, who were kind of a prevalent uh, street group at the time. You know, they were sort of, um, I suppose... (laughs) not really a cult cuz they were cult tends to make things sound a little dangerous yeah. you know they they were harmless but they were sort of a street a religious street group and so again that's me seeing things you know for the first time so that was that and then seamstress for the van was based on a girl who was married to our uh, album designer who sewed the cover of the madman album so, you know, that was the seamstress for the band. You know, there was a character from the whiskey, a waitress that, you know, I, I drew some uh, ideas from. So, yeah, it was a composite of a lot of different people, although it sounds like one particular person. Yeah.
0: And what's wild is that you're as you're explaining those elements to us, I can see it. But at the same time it was always something different in my mind, right? So seamstress for the band, no one's thinking you mean the album designer's wife. Like nobody, you're thinking, oh, this was like a groupie, and then she right. helped us with her. And so, I mean, I, this is why I love a conversation about what inspires the writing, because it is something always so different and unique than what you think is a listener. Right, but
1: that's the beauty of it, you see. I, I've always, always believed that... Don't let me explain really what a song's about. You know, you you come up with it's again. I always say this. I say it's like abstract art. Yeah. It's like going into a a museum or an, a gallery and seeing something like a Rothko or a Franz Klein. You know, and you see the stereotypical people looking at it. You know, trying to figure out what it's about and that's i think that's what songs should be about i think it's so much more interesting to let people draw their own conclusions and and find again it's like reading a book you know you you read a book and the characters in the book you you begin to picture them i mean they're sort of described but you have your you have your vision of what those people look like and i think people do that with songs whether it's rocket man or leave on or uh, you know, or tiny dancer, or, or something like that. It, it's so much more fun to hear what people's interpretation of songs are, rather than sort of dragging up what my oh see
0: poss- now. I think like it's to me, it's such a treat to get to hear your perspective. I feel like there's something magic in knowing the the real nuggets that led to that creation.
1: Well, I tried to do that in the book to a certain point, uh, but I quote Lou Reed when he said, you know, just because I wrote it doesn't mean I know what it's about.
0: Yeah, that's great. And,
1: you know, also uh, Paul Simon once said something to the effect that people come up with uh ideas for my songs that are often far more interesting than what i had intended in the first place and i totally subscribe to that and a lot of the songs i don't remember how i wrote them or why i wrote them or when i wrote them again the ones that i do you know i i just don't want people to think that this book is is a a litany of me explaining what songs are about there are a few in there i mean i explain that uh Benny and the Jets was um the idea came from the Machina Mensch in Fritz Lang's Metropolis, you know, the the female robot. That was the uh, that was the catalyst to that. All the girls love Alice, you know, was from the John Schlesinger movie The Killing of Sister George. And then in the book there's the whole story of, you know, a Candle in the Wind not be, Marilyn Monroe not being my original, you know, idea for the the title of the uh, the character in the song. So what
0: was your original idea?
1: Montgomery Clift.
0: <laughs> I haven't gotten to that part. Oh, of you it haven't. Yet. I was, no. was going to say because
1: yeah, wow. I, I didn't realize you hadn't read the book yet. Yeah, no,
0: uh, I, I, just, no, no yeah, I I I know, no, I I didn't expect
1: it. you to. But how yeah.
0: when how why Montgomery Clift? That was just because
1: I found him far more interesting. I didn't really like Marilyn Monroe that much. I didn't find her <laughs> very interesting. Wow. Um, but i made a creative decision in the end because i thought okay if this song's going to be successful i'm going to have to find somebody who uh appeals to the masses yeah. and represents probably the candle in the wind the fragile delicate flower you know uh, gone too soon kind of thing but no, I mean, she was not my original. And, and basically that song could have been written about a lot of people, lot you know, people. live fast, die young, leave yeah. a beautiful corpse. Yeah. But it, no, it started out because I'd seen The Misfits and uh, I loved the movie. I mean, it, it kind of tanked when it came out, I think. But I always liked Montgomery Clift. I always thought he was kind of an interesting guy, you know, confused and probably sexually confused obviously and um living probably in the wrong sort of framework of time i don't know i it, it, it as i say i just made a creative decision in the end because plus i liked his character in the movie you know because he was a cowboy and yeah. and you know he tamed the mustangs and then of course marilyn monroe whined and whinged about animal cruelty all the time so that put me off um <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I, I wasn't particularly interested in in her role in the film. But anyway, I, I guess because she was in the film, I it made me think of her. And I thought, okay, yeah, creative decision here. Let's go with Marilyn Monroe. Wow.
0: I loved in, um, I think it's in your opening chapter. It's sort of the end of the opening chapter. There's this pretty solid paragraph where... It's I read it as sort of you going like, this is who I am. I know myself well enough at this point to tell you who I am. And in this paragraph, you're like, you know, I love a martini, but oh, only yeah. one. <laughs> I have to have a dog. Right, you know, right. I love beautiful women with long legs. Like you're just sort of saying this summation. And then at the end of that, you're like, but if you want to know more, Keep reading. Right. (laughs) But I read that and then I read it to my boyfriend who was sitting next to me at the time and I just sat with it for a minute because I thought, (laughs) damn, like I really, obviously you've lived this life. So you've had decades to kind of figure out who are you. But I thought, wouldn't it be wonderful if we could all figure that out sooner or faster? Right, And I imagine in the, and you talk about stories in the book, but like you have lived some scenes like you have had (laughs) such a life right it's big at times it's it's hard and good and sad and all of these things what was that like for being in the north of england and then you find yourself sort of thrust into this lifestyle that could be especially during those decades wild right parties and (laughs) celebrities and just all of it well i think you
1: could probably ask anybody who's gone through the same, you know, hamster wheel that I have of of fame, fortune and whatever. (laughs) I mean, I never thought about it in the beginning and I've never really thought about it in the end. I've just lived it and lived on the peripheral and be, as I say, as I said earlier, I've always been an observer. And in so many of these incidents throughout the book, it's almost like I'm a fly on the wall. And I've I've lived my life very much that way as sort of a fly on the wall observer but I've also been in the middle of the hurricane most of the time too in the eye of the storm I should say but I I I don't know I've never really thought about it in those terms I mean all my contemporaries have had the same opportunities you know there are they all started the same way too so some of us some of us get lucky. Some yeah. of us get to ride the train. Some of us get to ride it a little faster than others and maybe faster than we would have liked. But I don't regret anything, you know. I mean well there's a couple of things I regret. <laughs> 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 but um uh, for the most part, no, I don't regret anything. I mean, I've loved my life. Uh but I look on it very much as it's almost it's almost like the Odyssey, you know, it's like Ulysses. He was searching for a way to get back home. And I suppose my life has been uh, a constant search for something, but I, I never knew really what it was. But I think it always was going in the right direction. Sometimes it took some wrong turns. But um, I definitely, definitely feel that I found my place in life and I think for a lot of my life I didn't really know where my place was. I think I sort of gravitated into different, it's a bit, I think I I quote from Wind in the Willows in the book somewhere, I say I was like Mr. Toad in Wind in the Willows, you know, it's just this fabulous sort of character who who sort of latched on to different ideas and different uh, fads and things like that. I mean, not fads in the, the obnoxious sense, but just uh, ways of thinking that I wasn't sure that that was really what I wanted to think. I was probably maneuvered and manipulated at times by generational changes that I didn't necessarily agree with, but went along with. I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah, totally. But... Um, so I think that's what I mean. I was always trying to find the reality in life, what I really, really felt I believed in. And I really, really know that I achieved that now. You know, I, I am completely, I won't say complacent because I hate the word complacent. I've I've achieved definitely what I want to achieve and there's still more to more to come definitely
0: if someone's listening to this who is in a creative field they're they're a writer they're you know they want to be an author they want to be a musician whatever and they're maybe where you and Elton were when you were like when he's writing in his diary like oh when's it going to be our turn why is are there things that you feel like you did back then that with retrospect you're like you know what That was a move. We didn't realize it at the time, but us doing these three things, or us committing to blah, 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 really helped propel us.
1: (laughs) Well, (laughs) it's corny to say, but it's true. The thing is that we didn't give up. And there were so many times that we could have given up, but there was always something. You know, it, it would be either we'd be just worn out from being rejected constantly. And then we'd go and buy a new album and we'd listen to it and go, but we could get there. You know, let's just, let's keep on. Let's keep going. And I mean, the the whole playing field is completely different now. And giving advice is not necessarily my best forte. <laughs> Because sometimes it could be completely the wrong advice. But at the same time, as I say, I don't know if it's harder now or if it was harder back then. There's certainly more people out there trying to achieve fame right now. And you can achieve fame now with quite a lack of talent. Yes. You know, it's easy to be... There's so many different areas. I I, I could sit here and just reel them off. You know, you can be a social media star. You know, you can be a reality TV star. And then you can be a musical star. But And and it's so different right now because the thing is kids can make music in their living room, Mm -hmm. you know, and they are making and they're making good music in their living room. You know, I, I don't subscribe to when people say, oh, the music's not as good today as it was back then. Yeah, blah, blah, blah. You know, that's that's a crock of shit, yeah. you know. I mean, there's great music out there and Absolutely. there's great talent out there. You just have to go looking for it. And again, you know, advice to people, songwriters. I mean, uh, I was at a Q&A the other day at a book fair in, in San Diego and a kid got up and, asked me about sort of, you know, he said, oh, well, I write, you know, but I, I, I'm I, a good guitar player and I write decent melodies, you know, but I'm not very good at writing lyrics. And I said, get a lyricist. Yeah. Find somebody. Go out there and, you know, do you know how many kids would probably jump at that, that are talented, that have something to say? Go out and find them. Put yeah. an ad in a paper I, if people still do that, you know. But I said... Yeah, you can't just throw it away because you feel you don't have a talent for writing lyrics. Look what happened to me. You know, I got lucky. It's like one in a million. You know, yeah. I, it was complete kismet. I, I don't, as I say, I don't try and question it because I, I just got lucky and I got the, the best guy in the world to be a partner. And again, I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to analyze it. It is what it is.
0: Yeah. What was the creative evolution like for you guys? Because even if you're looking at those early albums, there was a very distinct sound that then evolved as time went on and music began to change. Even just the pace of the music picked up, it became faster and more. So was that just natural to you guys? You were kind of leaning with what was next? And did you get any pushback?
1: Well, I think... It was very natural. And you have to remember, back then, we were making like two albums a year. You know, now you make, you're lucky if you make Whoa. one every five years. Yeah. But, but that was the, the way of the, that was the game back then. You made, you know, we made two albums a year. That's why there were so many albums out in the first three, of, you know, maybe five years. It was unbelievable. But the thing is, I always I always say that it's because of the music that we were listening to. And you had you had far more opportunity then to experiment than I think people do now. You know, now if you if your first album fails, you know, you're kinda lucky if you're able to make another one. Mm-hmm. You know, the label will drop you like that. Back then labels had a far more confidence in you. You know, I mean our first album tanked, you know, but then the Elton John album created Waves, and so did the Tumbleweed album, and they, they gradually stepped up in, in sales and, and notoriety. But the thing is, I think it's because of the diversity of the music we listen to. We soaked all of that up, and that's why I think of all of our contemporaries, we are the one act that has worked in so many different musical genres, I mean, it's extraordinary when you look back at it and you think about the difference between. We made an album like the Elton John album, the Black album, which was orchestrated heavily, uh, very experimental orchestrations and incredibly creative. But the songs were not bombastic, but they were more literary uh, infused. You know, things like 60 Years On and The King Must Die, which was. Um, uh, the title of a Mary Reynolds book about Alexander the Great, you know, uh, which I lent the title of, and and then we for the next album we do this album like Tumbleweed Connection, which is a complete Americana album before Americana, and I don't know if you could do that now. I mean, I don't think an act could make that radical kind of change. I mean, that would be like somebody. Like, I don't know, Cardi B going and making a jazz record, you know. Which
0: would be amazing. Well, by it would way. be amazing, yeah. <laughs> I feel like, too, I, I get the impression that if you were in that era of music, and in particular, English bands and English artists seemed to be really open to what was happening in the US if, if you 're watching documentaries about the Beatles or anybody at that time they 'll reference americana they 'll reference the beach boys they 'll reference things that they were hearing there and forgive my ignorance, but was that i 'm assuming because the music industry in the u s just had a lot more diversity than you guys were hearing in England
1: Well, there was something magical about America you know I mean from the early days when from the early days of rock i mean that was that was all coming to England and kids were besotted by it, you know, anything that was American and especially the music, you know, in the era of Elvis and Little Richard and Jerry Lee Lewis and Chuck Berry, you know, I mean, they were all of them were a huge influence on English bands in the same way as blues artists that came to England in the early 60s. You know, had they not come over and and be treated like kings over there where they were treated like crap at home, none of those British bands would have probably started. I mean, people like the Yardbirds and Led Zeppelin and uh, all of these bands that were heavily, heavily influenced by the blues. And luckily, too, you know, a lot of the music that wasn't being sold in the record stores was coming to England by American servicemen, you know, which happened to me, you know, with classic country music. But uh, think about like where the Beatles grew up is Liverpool and Liverpool is a, a major dock. You know, it's a seaport and a lot of merchant marines were coming in there and bringing music from America. And and guys from England that had gone to the States were coming back and bringing jazz records and blues records. I mean, you know, when Keith Richard met Mick Jagger at, at Dartford train station, you know, one of them had a Robert Johnson album under their jacket. Now, he believe me, they didn't find that in a record store. That yeah. must have come from somewhere else because record stores did not carry that kind of music back then. So we... A lot of us were lucky, I mean, that it was like manna from heaven that these records dropped out of nowhere into our hands and inspired us. And the thing about, like in the late 60s, when Elton and I first met, we would spend all of our downtime at a place called Musicland in in Soho on Berwick Street. And what uh, Musicland used to do was they used to get the American imports in from the states, like weeks and sometimes months before they came out in England, and we were just addicted to these records because they looked. The English pressings of stuff was so flimsy, and the covers were awful, and they were glossy. And the American covers were cool because they were like hard card, yeah. and they were, they were in, um, saran wrapped, you know, and and they they were so much better the pressings, you know. But all of this stuff would come over months sometime before we'd get it in England so we felt we'd sort of harvested gold you know like the first Leonard Cohen album or uh, you know some of the early Dylan stuff and and all these bands like Buffalo Springfield and, yeah. and Love and Moby Grape and bands like this that nobody in England knew about at that point so we felt we were in on something and Everything, just everything American appealed to us, you know, musically, culturally, especially me. I mean, it was, you know, I would have found my way here either way. You know, I, I would have found some way to get here. I just I just rode on the right bus. Yeah.
0: <laughs> I was thinking as you were talking of, I'm pretty sure it was an interview with, I want to say it was Dylan, where he was talking about at some point, music got too easy to access. That, you know, back then, like you're talking about, we had to go to this very specific place so we could get records before they were available in England. And I think about even in my childhood, we weren't doing records, we were doing CDs, but like... I saved up my money. I went down, you know, to Sam Goody, or I went mm-hmm. to someplace and I got a, I got a CD, and it, you know, was in the plastic, and oh my gosh, and then I would get back to, and you take the plastic off, and you take the booklet out. And it you was look a ritual. It. it was a ritual. Yeah, it's not and that now doesn't happen anymore. You just anymore. turn your phone on and you yeah. can stream, right, right? And it was a and really, it sounds
1: like crap. Too, yeah, it's you know. like
0: that. That we've lost a bit of the magic or a lot of the oh, magic yeah. in in what, even in learning about new music, because you were exposed to it through your friends or someone would be like, oh, I got a new album, you've got to listen to yeah. this, which is how I, I remember hearing Jagged Little Pill by Alanis Morissette for mm. the first time, right. because my friend was like, I got this album, and we listened to it 10 times in one day. But that, <laughs> I don't know that, well, that I exists think, anymore. I think you
1: basically answered your own question yeah. in the best way possible, and it, it is. I mean, it's no there's still like i said earlier there's there's great music out there but the sense of enjoyment doesn't seem to exist in the same way as it did back then. What vinyl albums and, and CDs to a point, you know, when you actually went out and bought records, half of the fun was buying them.
0: Absolutely. You know,
1: and going through them. Yeah. Now, you don't do, I mean, you don't even have an album sleeve anymore. Or, well, you do because vinyl has made a huge yeah, resurgence, you know, thank the Lord. Yeah, it, it's, it's just getting music on your phone that's right. no fun right you know i mean yes i i remember when elton and i you know all the way back to the early days when we'd get say you know the day we got electric ladyland by Jimi hendrix you know the the american version of it not the awful cover from england with all the <laughs> naked women on it and all wobbly and horrible you know no we got the the really cool version from the states and yeah we'd rush home and you know take off the sleeve and pull it out and put it on the, you know, and it was, again, yeah, it was a ritual. I mean, yeah. it was, and we'd put the headphones on and, you know, listen to the phasing and that doesn't happen. And yeah. Well, it, it still happens in my house. <laughs> yeah, same, in here too. Yeah, exactly.
0: Well, I thought this the other day. So the record I've been listening to a ton lately is uh, Joshua Tree by U2. Oh, okay. just You yeah. know, you're in a kick and you listen to yeah. the same way yeah, over sure. and over. And what I keep thinking is like, how fast you get through a record if you're going through one side of a record as opposed to your you phone. You listen on vinyl, I do, yeah, oh, good, good. yeah. I have okay. a great um, record right. player in there, I'll show you, you all stay. the way out. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, but that if you're listening on your phone, you could just press play and then you have music forever, right? But if you're listening on vinyl, you have side A,
1: Well, you're a captured audience, yes, you know? yeah. you're absolutely a captured audience, yeah. That's that's a huge point. The thing is. If you're streaming music, you just put it on and it's just endless and endless. And then you get kind of bored of it, you know, because it's maybe not exactly what you want to hear. You know, the beauty of... As I say, I play everything on vinyl, I mean, at home. And, you know, I... Our house is kind of little, so it's the kitchen's connected to the living room and everything like that. So I, you know, and I cook all the time. So I'm, I'm putting, you know, an album on. But again, you know, you have to put down a knife and go and flip the record yeah. over, you know. And yeah. also, I like to, you know, I I'm a huge jazz fan, you know, and jazz is what I play most of the time. But sometimes, you know, it's like. Okay, well, I'll take off Coleman Hawkins and put James Brown on, you know. I want to be able to make those choices, yeah. you know. I don't want a machine telling me what I can listen to. Um, that's never going to happen in my house, you yeah. know. And I have a jukebox, too. Oh, cool. So, you know, I can I can play random things. If I want to hear Al- Arthur Alexander and then listen to Nina Simone, you know, I can just punch him around, you know, yeah. and for a f- half an hour.
0: You have had this and, and in many ways continue to still have this career, this incredible career. As you look to the future, what does that look like? You know, one martini a day and cooking dinner every night and all of that. I'll
1: defer to, like, Duke Ellington. You know, people, somebody said to Duke Ellington, what's the best song you ever wrote? And he goes, the one I'm going to write tomorrow. The next one. Right, yeah. the next one. Yeah. So I subscribe to that. He also said... The Duke said a lot of good things. He also said that everybody should do two things, you know. So, when people say, "Well, how how do you balance careers, doing art and this?" Huh? Duke said, yeah, "Everybody can do two things," you know. And I ain't going to argue with Duke Ellington, you know. But yeah, the, and also somebody was yesterday said to me, "Well, now, what are you going to do now that Elton's retired?" And I said, "Whoa, whoa, hang on a second, isn't retired." He's just not touring he's anymore. Not touring. you know exactly. Do you think this is a guy who can sit on his ass and not do anything? Right. This guy is, like, motivated like nobody I've ever known. You know, he, he'll go, oh, I'm tired. I'm going to go on vacation now. And then as soon as that's over, he's ready to roll. So, <laughs> yeah, we're going to, you know, we're going to get in the studio pretty soon and, cool. um, you know, make some new music and uh, hopefully, you know, some good kind of contemporary but... But real Elton John music, and uh, hopefully, you know, that's you know, I I'm I'm motivated all the time. You know, I'm I'm just getting started.
0: I love it. Bernie, this has been a real treat. Oh, thank you so much. No, thank you for coming. Will you tell listeners, tell them about the book, what's it called, where they can get it, all those juicy details, if they want to take a deeper dive into some fantastic stories Okay, well, partying with (laughs) beetles.
1: The book comes out September 12th. It's called Scattershot. Uh, life, Music and Elton or something like that My Life, Elton <laughs> yeah, Anyway, it's called Scattershot so, uh, and the, the reason it's called Scattershot is because it's not a, a normal A to Z uh, autobiography it's nonlinear, linear and it's, it travels all over the world it's geographically very colorful and colorful in many ways so if you're interested go out and buy it and I thank you so much for this
0: Yeah, thank you